welcome. Welcome to this evening's Points of View program. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Center for Dance Education, and I'm delighted to welcome you here to the green room of the Veterans Building in San Francisco, and also to welcome those people who might be listening to this program, but at a later date, by the magic of podcast. Of course, all of you are familiar with the San Francisco Ballet's website, I hope, and you know to go there to find the podcasts and lots of other interesting and informative information. The Center for Dance Education produces this series of programs, the Points of View lectures, as well as the Meet the Artist interviews held one hour prior to certain selected programs in the Opera House, and the Ballet 101, which I hope you will keep your uh, antenna up for, because that will be offered again next January, I assume, and it's always a sellout. It, there's a small fee for materials, but it's a terrific five-week course for those who want to just get a little bit inside the, the world of ballet. So as we are, believe it or not, winding down this repertory season, we're starting to think about the exciting things that will come up next year. This evening... We are going to be talking about Program 6. Before we get underway completely, I want to remind you that we do have hearing assistance devices. I want to remind you that next, the next Points of View program will be the uh, Guest Scholar Program 7, which is the Balanchine at the All Balanchine program, something I'm looking forward to tremendously. And there are a number of programs surrounding the Balanchine um, repertoire and the guest scholar, the visiting scholar, who is um, Dr. Beth Genet. So I hope that you will all be here um, three weeks from tonight, April 18th, and I hope that you will also catch some of the events taking place before that, which include the uh, Commonwealth Club on Thursday the 12th, and then the San Francisco Ballet Building on the 14th, that's a Saturday morning, and then Monday, is that the evening? Is there an evening? Monday the 16th is in the evening. It's all in this wonderful brochure, which I hope you all have. It's also on the website, of course. Um, do hope that you will, that we'll see you there. I also want to announce, if you haven't figured it out already, that the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra recorded Shinji Ishima's um, score for Raku. And the CD is released, and the CD is available for purchase in the San Francisco Ballet shop on the mezzanine in the Opera House during the intermissions. Important to know that the shop is not open after the performances. It's open during the intermissions and, I believe, prior to the performance. <clears throat> this evening, for the last time this season, Martin West, our music director, and Shinji will be available to sign your CD after the performance in the lobby. So when you have purchased your CD during the intermission, go down after the performance and find wherever it is they're assigning. And I think it will be pretty self-evident and any usher will be able to point it out, I believe, in the lobby. So well, all of that said, let's move on to program six. This is another of our amazing 
mixed bill performances, works that include another world premiere, a rather sensational encore from last season, and another San Francisco ballet sort of premiere. My guests this evening are very well positioned to delve into a discussion of these works and especially about the training and preparation that's required to achieve the result that we see on stage. So at this time, if I could invite Ricardo and Alana to join me, we'll get going. Thank you so much for joining me. I want to uh, give you a little more um, personal introduction here. Let's start with Ricardo. Ricardo is um, a ballet master and assistant to the artistic director. Ricardo actually came to San Francisco Ballet at, to, to study in our school and then became a dancer with the company left in 1985 to join American Ballet Theater, where he had a renowned career as a principal dancer, returned in 1994 as a teacher. This is our theme, is sort of training, teaching, our school. Um, Then between 1998 and 2004, directed Argentina's famous um, Ballet Teatro Colón, directed and choreographed for the Ballet de Santiago in Chile, returned in 2004 here as a ballet master and appointed assistant to the artistic director in 2009. And we know that Ricardo has also produced his own versions of Nutcracker, full-length Corsair, and um, a Giselle, which is very special. And I don't know, have I left anything out? (laughs) Probably a lot. Anyway, welcome, Ricardo. Thank Thank you you, for coming. Good evening. And Alana Altman, I believe, has the honor of being the only San Francisco ballet dancer performing who trained from level one all the way through at the San Francisco Ballet School. That's pretty cool. Alana was named an apprentice in 2000, promoted to soloist in 2005. And we've seen her in a string of featured roles that cross the style spectrum, from Forsyth's Artifact Suite to Balanchine's Apollo to the Lilac Fairy in Sleeping Beauty and my personal favorite, Myrta in Giselle. This program, she's being seen as the Countess Sibel in Raimonda. So thank you, Alana, for joining us. Thank you. So as we get kind of wound up here, I want to, first of all, just go through some of the images we have from this program, six. Any comments you might have that would be helpful for our viewing audience and listening audience. And then we can um, perhaps expand a little on this idea of the training that prepares you to do the various roles we've talked about, the ones that are on this program, and uh, the, the broad variety of training that the San Francisco Ballet Dancers kind of pull together. It's sort of amazing. 
when you think about it. So starting with, and this is not program order, by the way, um, the Ballet Raku, choreographed by Yuri Posakov, who is the San Francisco Ballet's um, choreographer in residence, I believe is the correct title, um, premiered last year to the commission score by Shinji Ishima, and whose CD is now available. I hope you will all be picking that up. Um, as you might recall, this is the story <clears throat> of the burning of the temple in Kyoto, um, a story of love and jealousy and thwarted love, and it's remarkably designed and produced and danced. Here we have Pascal as um, the monk, Damien Smith. Um, what would his title be? It doesn't actually give him a title. The husband? The husband. He's a, a warrior. Uh, a, one assumes he's a um, nobility of some kind, I think. Yeah, it's so, sort of like, uh, you know, the husband, but the, but the, but the man uh, in power of the town, I guess, okay. you know, with his own, you know, fortress, castle, temple, and right. warriors. Right, and warriors. And we see in the background, this is, um, well, we'll see them again in a minute. The, um, there are the three principal dancers, uh, Yuan Yuan, was the dancer on whom the lead role was created. And she is bride to um, this man who is the, the local noble. And um, then the four ensemble dancers uh, provide very much a Greek chorus kind of support to the piece. And um, <clears throat> the costumes and the staging is Unbelievable. I've simply lost vocabulary words here. It's, um... well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a true San Francisco Ballet product. I mean, it is your Posakov, it's all of our uh, wonderful principals, it's um, um, Christopher Dennis, our lighting designer and set, and, um, and dance in a vocabulary in a way that it is kind of um, born here on the way that Yuri asked the dancers to move and um, to do an interpretation of this kind, um, the vocabulary, how you move is what's important, mm -hmm. what's interesting in this choreography. The narrative is terrific, but the, but the vocabulary, yeah. the way, the movement is incredible. And a final word, uh, we do have a clip, a final word about the score, uh, Shinji in case you were not aware, is a member of the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra and has been for well over 20 years and plays the string bass. And um, there are amazing stories that he has to tell. There's an interview with Shinji on the website, so once again, refer you to the website. But he describes the things that went into the actual um, assembling of the, of the music for the score.
listen to the um, woodblock. The woodblock is a very important um, sound, created the created what Shinji wanted for that moment. But he also used it as the opportunity to play his own bit of humor. And the woodblock sound is actually Morse code. And the Morse code is actually the phrase, I think it's um, love forever or something like that. It's in the program notes. But is, um, isn't that just amazing? <laughs> I love how that piece... Um something else unique San Francisco ballet in that it shows off the men that we have and those four really tall, strong men with swords. It's not what you would typically think of a ballet dancer who, who was, you know, light and jumping and, or even just behind the girl. It, it got to showcase these these men in something um, very unique and very special. I know it was a really important bonding experience for them to have their swords and learn learn that technique through some, from someone who studied it very carefully and, and was very knowledgeable. So, um, yeah, it was a very unique experience mm-hmm. for dancers. And they, there are four men who perform in the next ballet, and do something so entirely different. But I think it speaks to the same principle, and that is you get the men of your ensemble together, and they have to, they have to learn their craft, and then they have to rehearse, and they have to bond until they are doing the movement as if they are just one impulse. It's pretty amazing. And actually, for, for women, it it's more natural. We, we're used to being in, or when you're in the core in Swan Lake or Giselle or one of those big ballets where it's a, it's a core of women that learns to move as one. And that is where the power comes from, is when they, we all um, unite in that way. It's not as typical for, for the guys. So, again, unique. Probably more in this company than in many, but... Well, let's move on and look at some of the images. Ramonda is, um, well, I enjoy it thoroughly, but then I've always had a thing about the Petipah ballets and about the historic pieces. This is actually um, an excerpt. It's Act 3. If you know your ballet history, you know that in the 19th century, the multi-act spectacle ballet ruled... We'll have just a little glimpse here. I'm, unfortunately, we don't have enough pictures to show the extraordinary set, which is just opulent and gorgeous. But the, the multi-act ballet with dozens and dozens and dozens of dancers and a very rigid hierarchy, a very large ensemble that would be both classical and character. There would be many acting roles. There would be dozens of solos for um, both men and women in the historic pieces, probably more women. Um, And then at the very top of it all would be the ballerina. And in the 19th century, the man who stood behind her and lifted her. 
um, one of the interesting things about reviving these pieces in the 20th century and late 20th century um, is that most of the, um, let's say, choreographers, ballet masters who have revived them couldn't resist giving the men more to do. Especially Rudy. Especially in this version. Now, many of you may be um, of a time in history to remember when Rudolf Nureyev defected from the then Soviet Union to the West, and simply the, the, the impact was extraordinary because he was a male dancer, and he was gorgeous. And it wasn't that we didn't have male dancers. We had a few. But there was something about Nureyev that really turned ballet history into, uh, into being able to pay attention to strong male technique. And he took Raimonda, and he, he did a full-length version, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah, this is a divertissement, and it actually starts out with some of the uh, um, folk dances. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an introduction in which, Alana, uh, you're the principal in that dance. And what is this dance about? Well, um, <laughs> 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 it's the, the king and the countess... Um, well, this is Raimonda's wedding, the third act, or I guess the whole thing is a story that culminates with a wedding in the third act. They always typical. did. They always culminated in a wedding. And so Unless somebody died. a king and a queen, typical. So um, we, it, it's, a, it's a wedding dance, and it's our, our town or our, our family, and it's a joyous celebratory dance. In Hungarian style. In Hungarian style, and it opens the ballet. And then it goes into the uh, classical ballet section, um, which is eight different couples and, uh, and then, uh, you know, the principals. The story itself of Raimonda has not survived with the same popularity that, for instance, Sleeping Beauty or Swan Lake or even Don Quixote or even Le Corsair have managed to be produced in a modern for a modern audience, in, and Ramona has never really survived and become well, popular as a full length. As a full length, but um, what you will see tonight, it's uh, quite a spectacle and, and very, very demanding for the company, is the so-called white act that is the, the bone of classical ballet. It's very, very important to perform this kind of repertoire. It's very, very demanding. And then you see the dazzling style of, of classical dance and the technique and its formula, how normally you would have you know, your principal couple and then you have the different variations, different tempos and temperaments of the dancers, if you like, mm -hmm. and uh, a music, music, uh, different music to each one of those variations, uh, showcasing each one of the dancers through. So it's quite, quite wonderful to watch, just like you would, you would in the third act of, um, say, Swan Lake. You would get to see the full divertissement and full-on dancing. This is a, um, a divertissement of Raimonda that has as an objective to entertain, and it's quite beautiful. And we'll see a similar thing at the end of the season when the company does Don Quixote. It, there's a wedding and with divertissement. Um, Sleeping Beauty, there's a wedding with divertissement. And it was all just the way the late 19th century, especially the imperial court and the audiences of the imperial cities, um, expected to be entertained. 
And they would go on for hours and hours. Many, they've mostly been edited when we see them in the West and in this century. Um, but one of the things that I think is, is sort of forgotten is the contrast between the classical dance and what we call character dance. And I think it's interesting to spend a minute talking about the character dance. Unfortunately, we weren't able to get any good pictures. Um, what you're seeing is uh, Sofiane, Silva, and Tite as the leads, uh, Raymonda and Jean de Brienne, and then their ensemble, um, who do this extraordinary, um, dense, classical dancing, just classroom pedipod technique that is extremely challenging. Um, there's a very famous solo. I'm sorry, I keep thinking of all these wonderful things about this variation, uh, this divertissement. Um, George Balanchine, who of course came from the Mariinsky Theater and this tradition, uh, choreographed his own version, which he called Pas de Dis, and it was just four couples in the principal couple. And then he expanded it and added some of the character dances and called it Cortege Hongroise. And then Lou Christensen, who um, had, was familiar with all of that and was the director at San Francisco Ballet, created his own version, which was called Variation de Ballet. Do you remember that? I danced in it. I bet you Tracy did. Tracy Cape Meyer was my partner. Oh. <laughs> and, um, but then um, we see these various um, reproduced versions in the context of the ballet with all the lavish costumes. <clears throat> the other ones I've mentioned were really just set pieces that, that are just classical. Um, but there are two or three things that they have in common, every single one of those different versions. One is this solo for the ballerina, which is a showstopper. Oh, it's just gorgeous. And the pot de cot for the four men. Well, and, this, and this, that's the beauty about classical ballet. I mean, we don't do classical ballet for the sake of repeating ourselves. It, we do it because there are very significant... Uh, part of the repertoire, and um, when you have the dancers developing and growing, and everybody goes into their own um, shining moment, and uh, it is very important to provide the repertoire for each one of those dancers to shine, and to have that sort of evolution within their, you know, technical and artistic abilities, and then to expose them to this kind of repertoire. You, of course, you bring the, you know, something like Raimonda because you have the people to do it. And, um, you know, of course, every, you know, we, we can challenge basically everybody in the, in the company to do whichever part. Um, but in casting, you know, a ballet like Raimonda and uh, Nuriyev's version, it is interesting which are the choices and who get, actually get to dance it. Um, and, it's not um, too similar to other divertissement. I think it has its own style, it has its own technical difficulties, and it has its own magic. So uh, although it, it wants to look, there's a tendency to look, uh, to do classical dance like lithographs, you know, just old-fashioned dancing. But it needs to be uh, invigorized and energized by today's dancers in a style like Raimonda. And I've observed in looking at the casting lists, which, again, you can see them on the website, um, the, 
variations have been rotated among the dancers so that on one night you saw Sarah Van Patten do the first variation and on another night she did the third variation or something like that. And likewise with some of the other dancers. So there's quite a large handful of our principals and soloists and members of the corps de ballet doing those, those main variations, but they're trading off. That has to be pretty challenging in the rehearsal. Well, the, the Hungarian dance is quite challenging too, isn't it? In, in style and in, in a mm-hmm. technique. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you were opening night. Um, so. Talk about the actual, um, what, it, what are some of the differences between the classical variations and being given a character variation? Um, well, it's completely different starting at your feet. You're not wearing point shoes. And that changes the whole way that you, you stand on the ground. It, you're, you are, your weight is lowered. You're more grounded into the floor. And um, I think that's kind of the root of character dancing, is it, it's in your thighs. And, uh, you know, you see... You, maybe have seen those Russian guys that can, like, bounce on their knees and um, kick their... Yeah, yeah. So um, character dance has more... Not necessarily more or less, but just a different kind of passion and, and, and guts. So, um, so that started off different than, than wearing a tutu and point shoes, which is very, very difficult in its own way. Um, and then something that I love so much about Ramonda is the... the it, yes, it's Hungarian, but I think coming from Rudolf Nureyev, it has just that pure Russian feeling in it. And the music and um, the bravura, I, I felt really connected to to history and for me personally that's my own blood too which I loved my grandmother is Hungarian so um, and my grandfather Russian so um, and to top it off like as a as a ballet student you you see these roles you watch the classics and they all have the character dance in it and and we have classes in in character dancing, not as much per se, but um, and watching the principals, watching the people that I look up to, and how how they have interpreted the roles as uh, dancers before me. That's that's really where it all comes from. Is like Ricardo said, we're not um, using the fossils or whatever we're we're putting our own touch on something that has historical value and so that you all get to see what came before but with our own personal touch to it go ahead that's, just, that, that's a great point i've um about point shoes no point shoes character shoes but in raimonda uh there is a, a link and of course the hungarian style and the use of the epilmon on the on the way that you place your nose and your shoulders and your arms and how you do circular movements all to go to the center 
and you will see all throughout the entire ballet the use of the epaulement. That's exhausting, putting putting you back out and then bringing it back in and changing the heads constantly. So the character dances and the classical dance do have a similarity on epaulement, but the work of the legs is entirely different. And Alana, you mentioned that um, not only do you have it in your blood, but um, you had some resources right here in the company that you could uh, tap for some coaching advice. Yeah, um, when we got into stage rehearsals, my first, uh, the first thing I did was say, go directly to Gennady Nadvigin and Maria Kochakova, our Russian superstars. Like, please, give me some advice. Tell me what you see. Tell me what you think. Because um, they, they grew up with a ton more training and um, more experience than I have. And, and it's such a wealth of knowledge that we have in our company that, that is great to tap into. I think it's the facts are American dancers um, do so much and do so many things on such a broad scale. But in the tradition of the old European um, schools that go back for th- three centuries or more, um, the training includes very intense work in character dance. And you would learn the Slavic dances, and you would also learn, for instance, the Spanish dance. You get a chance to show that off later. Do you want to share that with us? Sorry, we were discussing earlier. Um, in Don Quixote, I do the role of Mercedes, and um, that, again, has the, the flair of character, but it's, it's from the Spanish side, and that's when Ricardo comes in handy <laughs> with all of his... So I wouldn't go to Gennady no necessarily for that. I go to Ricardo. <laughs> well, we... we um, oh, there's just so much about Ramona that is so wonderful, but I think we are going to move forward. We had another couple pictures here. This just gives you a taste of the... This should look so familiar to you in terms of the, um, the classics. And this is our... I think it's our one representative this season of um, that really intense tradition. And then we move on to this program's world premiere. And it's the fourth world, is it, I think the fourth world premiere of this season. So that's been kind of intense for everyone. Uh, this is Guide to Strange Places. It's the first piece created for San Francisco Ballet or seen by San Francisco Ballet audiences by Ashley Page. And he chose the music of John Adams. Some of you might have remembered or might remember hearing Martin West refer to this in the um, points of view that he shared with us earlier in the season. Uh, Ricardo, I believe you're the ballet master. Yes, I am. For this piece. So um, let's just look at a couple of the images here. This gives you a taste of what it looks like. We have images here of Gennady and um, Maria Kochkova. And that shows you a little bit of both costuming and um, asking the men to have a certain style to their... I mean, you don't usually ask the guys to have a certain hair. The hair, yeah, yeah, very slick, yeah. Uh, and, it has to do with, with the whole um, production concept. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and Jaime Garcia, Castilla Garcia, I've got it backwards. And I can't... Vanessa. Vanessa. Zaharian. 
in a different color, and Sarah Van Patten, who has a slightly, I would say her character, her, this is not a piece that has a narrative. No, it's absolutely abstract. Um, it, it wants to um, absolutely dance to the music. Um, it's an uh, invigorating uh, dance, very, very, very creative. Uh, being part of the, of the um, construction of this work was actually fascinating because um, I'd known Ashley for quite some time now as he's, you know, he's artistic director of the Scottish Ballet and ex-Royal um, Ballet dancer. Uh, he's choreographed quite a few pieces for the Royal Ballet and for the Scottish Ballet. But I have never actually uh, worked with him. So when we first met, I was very curious because I knew what he was going to, um, to choreograph to. And I was just really, really um, curious as to how is he going to choreograph to this humongous score um, that is very, very challenging for the orchestra. And if it is challenging for the orchestra, you can imagine how challenging it will be for the dancers. So um, he uses... It's actually, his, his approach to it, to me, to, my, to the way I see it, is actually quite European. European in the time uh, when he was dancing, he uses everything from Killian to Forsyth to uh, you name it, um, Pina Bausch, you know, and the way, he, the way he uses the floor. But it's very, very unique. Um, those are his influences, but, they, but the piece has a very, very distinct Ashley Page style. I can't remember... Oh, that was the last one. Well, let's go backwards just so we can keep looking at the, the... These photographs focus on the principals, but it's a fairly large cast. Yes, yeah, 18 so people. 18 dancers. And so, there's, and so there's a massive kind of impact it yeah, has. The construction of it is actually quite interesting because um, as we were speaking about uh, classical dance, you have the corps de ballet, you have your demi-solos, you have your soloist. You have your principals, and each one, you know, the corps of the ballet are on the sidelines, and the demis are a little bit further in, and then the soloists are right side to side, but, you know, closer to center, and the principals in the center. That's normally the formula of how you would, you know, place, uh, you know, your dances in your, in your ballet. Ashley Page, he says, okay, we have four couples of principals. We have a quartet you know, uh, composed of girl boy, girl boy. We have two soloist guys, um, and we have four core girls. And instead of placing them orderly in the stage, on the stage he decides that they're just going to fly in in front of the, <laughs> the people that they're dancing, um, uh, who just made an entrance, they're doing something, and all of a sudden they fly in and they take a place on stage, and then a quartet comes, and then another principal couple, and another principal couple, and you would think, oh, that's going to look like a real mess. But his understanding of the music, he gave me a, a, a wider spectrum of how to listen to the music, and he's guided me through the music to understand how he hears it. And Guide to... Strange Guide to Strange Places. <laughs> the name, actually, um, you should know, is originated by, by uh, John Adams. And um, a little, you can kind of see the back. Um, there's no set, but there are projections on the backdrop. And the projections change. The backdrop 
is it is guide to strange places but you know what that is when you look at it tonight it is the grid to the burning man when they set camp in in the desert you know they have this whole um uh, what do you call it uh, cityscape where all the trucks and everybody is to place themselves and you know locations once Burning Man, the whole madness leaves, there is a whole grid um, take, um, taken from above of the markings uh, in the sand of, you know, of this, what we call grid. And um, it really has no intention to associate, only that, that the designer, uh, John Morell found, found it interesting um, as a guide to strange places to sort of see a roads or a grid or, and then the way is, um, the way that David Finn did the lighting, it creates such an atmosphere, again, non-deaf, you, you just couldn't tell what that is, but it's sort of like an abstract modern look to it that's really attractive. And the color changes, and the, the colors of the dancers and the color of the backdrops. So. The ballet is 23 minutes, and it has 40 cues with four spotlights. That's a lot of work for everybody back there. You think that the dancers are working hard. <laughs> All our technicians and the spotlights and, the, and, the, and Jane Green, who calls the show on every second of, where, of every move in or out, she is right there on her console, um, you know, just calling, calling, you know, now the, the blue couple en- enters and then the, the, you know, couple one, couple two, and calls up for all the spot, follow spots to follow their dancing. That to me is amazing. <laughs> oh, that's extraordinary. Um, a little bit of the theme that I was introducing at the very beginning of our time was about the training and the preparation that the dancer has to have and that the contemporary dancer has to have. And what kind of training is necessary in order to do this Ashley Page piece? You mentioned a few of his influences, but um, what dancer is going to be able to do the kind of movement he's asking for? Will we recognize that? Um, yeah, well, he, he had quite a, he had a ball you know, coming to San Francisco Ballet and seeing the dancers. Um, I mean, Alana, for instance, have, you've danced a great range of repertoire. Um, you've danced from, the, from, the, from all the classics to, to the contemporary to, uh, you know, you name it. So um, you have to have quickness in your movement. You have to have a lot of control. You have to have great sense of musicality. You have to um, be very sensitive to partnering and being partnered into the unknown. Um, partnering, touching somebody when you're dancing. You know, when you do social dance. And in America, most people dance apart. You don't really touch yourself, you know, each other when you dance. Um, but when you do... When you agree to dance with someone, it takes a second before we say, okay, you know, do you like to, how would you like to hold, you know? Do you know what I mean? And then you start dancing and it's hard to coordinate. 
Well, in classical dance, we, we very specifically take four counts to stand, and then she opens her arm, and we take the arm, and then she's basically on the, on the driver's seat, right? We have to follow how she moves. In this type of choreography, there is a, there's a, all kinds of ideas, all intermingled and, and twisted, and they go to the most unexpected places. Ashley is really, really, really one of the most inventive uh, um, choreographers that I ever worked with, and I've been quite fortunate working with quite a few uh, choreographers. But his lifts, the way he decides, okay, Alana, you take off that way, I'm going to catch you midway, change your direction, but when you change the direction, I want you to drop your legs, I'll cut your torso, I'll lift my leg and then lift you over this side. Like that. Okay, go. Yeah. <laughs> And that was, that was, was interesting. Because, I mean, we sweated tears. And um, for me to understand, what are they doing? I've, I warm up and I try to do it. Because there's no way to write this type of choreography, but there is a sensation that you can acquire by trying. And since we are in the discovering of, does this work or does it not? Does it need more? Or should you push with the left leg? Or, or Alana, should you do this? Or trust me, I'll do it, and then I'll catch you, and then you take control. There's a, there's a lot that goes into the process of inventing new partnership, new choreography of how to handle one another. So, And, and sometimes... As you're trying something, something new develops out of that, and, and sometimes the choreographer loves that, and, and you just invented a completely new way to do something. And, but you can only get there by trying, attempting. That was definitely an observation I had about seeing it, was some of the most extraordinarily unusual partnering um, maneuvers, for lack of a better word. And the best part is that it's not... Um, like a circus trick. It's not the most fantastic thing you can possibly do. Stop, pose, applause. It's just organic. And that amazing thing just happens. And then they're off and running and doing the next thing. So it was just a, a momentum to this piece that was breathtaking, I would have to say. Before we open it up to questions... I want to go back to this theme of training. Um, the San Francisco Ballet School has a full um, eight-year, whatever it is, uh, levels of training. When you were you know, in level one, um, how did you were, um, how did you know that you were going to become a full professional dancer, and how did the the school administration and the teachers and the guidance, what kind of guidance did you have so that when you became advanced, it was clear that you were company-bound? I don't know if I knew in level one at age nine that I was going to be a professional ballet dancer. I think um, once I started taking lessons at San Francisco Ballet School, and I saw the company rehearse and perform over the years, because I'm pretty sure those first few years I was just in and out, and next activity, next activity, homework, everything was a crazy, crazy schedule. But um, probably by level four, 
I was, um, I got to dance in the Sleeping Beauty and do one of the little garland girls in, in the company's production. And I was around the professional dancers and I, I learned that there was, you know, a, a career that can be had. I still don't think I was think, thinking about careers, but that was the first introduction. Yeah, like, wow, these people are doing this all the time. Okay. Um, and then, and the whole time, I would just have to save my teachers. They were so supportive and, and so rigorous and, and you know, disciplined, but so loving. And, um, it was really, it became my home away from home. And without that support, I don't think I would have wanted or been able to continue. And, um, so then in, I'd say my sophomore year in high school, I, I was in level six and we started having classes early or maybe it was level seven, um, classes, ballet classes began at 12.30. So I started leaving school early. I did my school from 8 to 11.30 and then rushed off to ballet class. And that was when it started to transition, that I'm making sacrifices in other parts of my life. And um, I see this goal of, of becoming a professional, and, and that is the only thing that I want. So it's worth not going to high school dances and not um, having as much free time or any free time as a, as a student. Um, that, that was the shift for me. So it definitely was not at nine years old, um, but around 15, 16. They, um, my loveliest memory of you is coming into level seven. Um, I was teaching in the school then, and I remember Alana used to stand at the Harold Christensen studio, HC as we call it. As you go in through the first door, you were the second girl on the right there against <laughs> the wall. That's where you always stood. And you've always, um, you can pick and kind of realize there's a future company member. There's a future company member. People develop and they get stronger, but straight away from day one, your arabesque was absolutely wonderful. So was your second position. Um, wonderful footwork that needed a little improving, but you quickly caught up. And um, you began to turn really, really well and move rapidly through the ranks, you know, and not only that, but brains deluxe. <laughs> Thank you. Well, and just briefly, Ricardo, you had a very opposite experience because you left home and traveled thousands of miles to go to another, to go to a destination school, as it were. Um, contrast that a little bit with Alana's experience. Um, well, I, I was the only boy in, in school, you know, and I began to dance at six. But then um, I come from an operatic family, and my grandfather was a piano concert master, and my grandfather was a painter, so we're all artists. And, uh, you know, I come from, you know, we're seven children, five sisters, and one brother. And um, my mother always wanted to have, you know, the girls dance, um, but then they've kind of went in, they've fancied for, for a year or so, and then they got bored. It's too hard 
to work on that. So, but they used to bring me as a, as a, a young boy, and um, at six, I was in love with dance, and, and with my teacher, I just found him so exciting, and I just went and pulled on his shirt on my Russian teacher, and I asked him, you know, why don't you teach me to dance? I want to dance. So he tried me for two weeks, and then um, he said, you know, you're really too little, and, but if you're really interested, come back in two years when you're eight, and I'll give you free training. So I don't remember what happened during this sixth or my seventh year. All I remember is on January 24th, when I was eight <laughs> years old, my hair was parted here real tight, and my dance shoes were under my armpit, and I told them I'm ready. Four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. And how old were you when you came then to San Francisco Ballet? I was, um, San Francisco Ballet went to Columbia when I was 17. It was the first professional ballet company, and um, Michael Smuel, Luke Christensen, um, director then, used to uh, offer me a contract, and um, I came after like six months later. I had just turned 18. And then you were in the school here for pretty short time. I was in the school for five months. Yeah. Um, and then immediately I was accepted into the company and danced pretty much all the, you know, <laughs> company's <laughs> repertoire then. It was an exciting um, place. But the, the one thing that I agree, it's how you are taught, you know, that can kind of you know, plants that seed, you know. I mean, when you say, you know, you like the environment and it kind of became a second home, um, it's that place where you can actually feel that you can actually work, you know, where you, where you um, it's a hard job because, you know, we're, this is a kind of career where you just absolutely want to be your absolute best and it's really, really sad when you're, in one day, you don't achieve your goals, you know. Every day you pretty much want to be fabulous, and that's just really hard to do. But all of our dancers, you know, you and me and everybody else, no one excluded, you know, deserves the attention in order to be able to develop the, the, their abilities. Everybody has the strength and weaknesses. But my training was of a very soulful um, Russian dancer married to a Colombian ballerina, and the two of them had, you know, I was taught with the Russian technique, but with a Latin American sort of um, heart and soul of dance and rhythm. So I had a very different type of training. So by the time I came to San Francisco Ballet, my floor work was impeccable. I'd been training with all those girls. My feet were strong as the girls. <laughs> you know, my line was actually, it was what I really had going on for myself. And I had a really good plie, you know, like my... My, uh, my knees bent so low, so I had all the possibilities for a good jump, but my jump has never been developed. When I got to San Francisco Ballet, uh, Anatoly Vilsak, have you ever heard that name? One of the greatest teachers in the school. He went, raz, va, tri, <laughs> and he <just laughs> jumped. And he always said, try to reach the top of the ceiling when you jump. And he just, he oh. killed me. I mean, I would wake up in the middle of the night with my calves literally on my knees, screaming that, you know, but, but it, I came to San Francisco Ballet. Within five months, I was a jumper. And I had great, great people around me. They were fantastic, fantastic jumpers. Remember Andre Reyes? He's a fantastic jumper. Or David McNewton. 
That's right. They, they were, were fantastic jumpers. Yeah. It was an era of kangaroos. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Remember. Let's take just a couple minutes to let audience members ask questions before we send you off to this evening's performance. Is there anyone who would like to start a question? Yes. She's asking a question about the position of the foot and the leg that she sees in this slide. And um, the foot looks like it's way forward over the metatarsal. And um, so I'll let you answer that. Well, her knee is, is bent. She's in plie. And so um, bending the knee enables the foot to go extreme over her point shoe. But Pascal Mola is holding her up, so she can do that because um, she probably wouldn't. Well, Fran is really strong; she maybe could stay there by herself, but not for a, very long. So, I mean, it's totally possible to put all your weight over, especially on two feet. But with one foot, it, you're right; it is an extreme position with her knee bent, but she's also supported. So. Mm-hmm. That is, that is something, um, a trait of neoclassical to contemporary dance. You would not do that in the classical, you know, skim of the technique. That would be against the rule. You won't see that in Raimonda in the classical right. tutu. Yeah. Everything would be absolutely imbalanced, upright and on toe. On the neoclassical, we tried, or, you know, Ashley has tried to just break through every rule and there are no rules. So, and you want to extremeline everything. So, therefore, it's a very good observation on your, on your part. And actually, in, in, the, in the classical ballet, like in Raimonda, there's plenty of times where the dancers plie on point, bend their knee on point, and stay on point. But in order to do that, in, classically, you, you pull your arch back, and that um, they... You can jump on point that way. You can't jump on point with it over. Yes, it's it just not as stable. Break. We have time for one more question. Yes. That's a great question, and that is in all of the exotic and inventive um, partnering and lifts that come along in the contemporary works, how does everyone stay safe? Um, That's a trick. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Well, we... The choreographer does say, okay, Alana, let's, let's, let's do this, and then we try. And it's quite obvious to the eye, like, oh, God, that's just a terrible idea. Or try it. Oh, there's something, one of this, part of this idea that actually works. And then, you know, you may say, I don't feel safe on this landing. Can, can you, we uh, land differently? Then the ideas begin to take shape where he and she are 
in a safe place to explore and maybe take it someplace else. It's rare that the choreographer will say all those kind of crazy ideas and then we just jump in and do it. Like, um, we mark through it, like, um, okay, so I'm going to put my hand here, you're going to put your hand there, and then when my leg goes there, you're going to catch it there. So we plan out um, what it's going to look like in our heads, and then we go slowly together. And then there's there's Ricardo or, or another ballet master in the room, so maybe I feel like this lift is going to be dangerous. Ricardo will come over and spot there'll be like a, or a group of men there ready to catch you so that the first couple times you do it, you don't feel scared. And um, so, of course, we keep that in mind. It's like safety first. <laughs> it's a great question, but I want, I want to remind everybody tonight when you watch Guide to Strange Places, it is very unusual, and you, you might not really see the degree of difficulty uh, which is not difficult to the dancers at all now. You know, we have gone through months of training, and um, the grace that you will see tonight is, is the hard work that everybody's put into it. Um, we don't do something that it's, you know, that you have a chance of injury. Um, we do things where it has to escalate to a level of grace, and um, to allow the performer to actually uh, express his, uh, he or she to express themselves. Well, I wish we could continue. Those were two great questions to wrap up with. I want to thank you, Alana Altman and Ricardo Bustamante, for spending time with us this evening. And thank I want you. you all. Thank you. Enjoy the show.